Hey guys, welcome back to Handling It. I'm your host, Catherine, and as you know, I thought I had my life all figured out, and then I realized I actually didn't, but I'm handling it. And one of the best ways I've learned how to do that is to talk with others about how they're handling their own lives. So if you've been following our social media accounts, you know that this week we are celebrating Handling It's one year anniversary. I cannot believe it's been a year since I released our first episode, and I am so amazed at how much we've grown since day one. For those of you who have been listening since the beginning, you know that I'm a one-woman show. I created this podcast to converse with other working professionals about their careers and the passions they have in order to provide guidance and advice to myself and others who are trying to handle their lives. I am so incredibly grateful to the number of guests who have come on the podcast to share their stories, and of course, for you, the listeners, for tuning in each and every week. And in celebration of our anniversary, I'm releasing episodes all throughout this week, each highlighting an incredible guest. And today's episode features professional violinist, film composer, and music educator, Azinma. Playing the violin since the age of three, Azima is creating a genre of her own by combining this classical instrument with a modern style. She has a new holiday song, Drummer Bay, which is out now for streaming, and we'll be chatting all about it. I am so excited for you to hear from her and learn about her story with music. So you know what to do, turn up the volume, get comfortable, and I hope you enjoy. Well, Azinma, you're a professional violinist, a film composer, and a music educator. You've worked with artists like Beyonce, Stevie Wonder, Clean Bandit, and SZA, to name a few. And as someone who has always wanted to learn how to play the violin personally, I am just so excited to have you on. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Catherine. I'm very excited to discuss with you your musical journey, if you will. Um, Now, you say your geographical and cultural background is what sort of led you to the violin, because you were born and raised in the Midwest, correct? Yes, correct. So would you mind just introducing listeners to your story, your upbringing? Yeah. So as Catherine, you know, pointed out, I was born in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is in the Midwest. And my dad is African Guyanese, Afro Guyanese, and my mom, she's white, but her family is, you know, they're German American, that whole thing. So um, growing up, I just had two very different cultural upbringings, but I was also located in the Midwest, which at the time, you know, was much more homogenous than it is right now. So mm-hmm. just growing up, I never really fit in racially, culturally, like there were all of these things happening. And then to top it off, I was super obsessed with the classical violin. So It's kind of a very interesting melting pot for many reasons, but I started playing the violin when I was four years old. I went to school, I went to a Montessori school on a farm and Mm -hmm. they happened to have a violin program there. And when I saw these kids with violins, I was just like, I want to play too. I want to do this. Like, so I told my parents and, um, you know, I think my dad, especially just being from a very, very, very poor upbringing and, um, you know, having his own success through very rigorous education and, you know, playing by the rules, I think he was like, this is so weird. Like a kid studying music, a kid wanting to do art, like this isn't what kids do. (laughs) So they were both pretty shocked. And I, you know, they eventually gave in and I was pretty naturally gifted and I just stuck with it. So that was kind of the 
foundation, I guess, for where I am today. But I think the unlike a lot of other violinists who I you know knew growing up or I went to school with, I think for me, my parents never forced me to play. Like it was always just something I love to do. And also my household was very, very musical. My mom was this Bob Dylan, Janis Joplin, Bill Monroe type of fan, like so very awesome. like Americana, rock, that type of stuff. And then my dad was a big fan of jazz and funk and, you know, Stevie Wonder and um, Bob Marley, just all of these different types of musical influences. And then I would just play with the music and the records. And I think just that cultural fusion and then geographical fusion is what made me who I am today. That's amazing. So yeah, you started playing at the age of four, which I'm just blown away by that. <laughs> I love when I hear <laughs> about people's interests and in instrumentation in general. Um, but when did you know that that passion was something that you wanted to turn into a career? Mm. Um, I didn't know until pretty late, to be honest. I was halfway through my undergrad, um, I was, I had been doing pre-medicine at the University of Nebraska and then halfway through, I was like, I actually don't want to do this. I just, I want to be a professional violinist. So I was, I went to college when I was 17. So I was probably 19 at the time. Okay. And, um, that's when I was like, I, I want to give this a shot. And if it doesn't work out, I guess I'll figure out a plan B, but also I'm a firm believer in not having plan B just go for your dream and make it work. But that was when I decided I wanted to be a professional musician at 19. That's amazing. Yeah, I was going to say, because I had read that you had this interest in medicine and actually went to school to study medicine. And then you did. You had this sort of, I guess, shifting gears and went right into performing and music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I moved to New York. And I mean, that that change was just so I was just amazing. It was like a, a breath of air or like finally drinking water after being in the desert. I mean, being at the University of Nebraska is very lucky because we they happen to have this amazing string quartet called the Kiara String Quartet. Um, you know, this Juilliard-trained New York City-based string quartet happened to be in Nebraska, so I studied with them mm -hmm. um, for the rest of my undergrad, and it was really amazing. And I actually still work with them today here in New York. <laughs> They're my mentors, which is so cool. But um, moving to New York, I was just uh, – it was – so refreshing to see all these styles and see so many different ways of playing so many different you know musical tastes so many fusions happening it really inspired me um and I and I think was a fertile ground for me to be who I am today right and there's so many outlets for music in New York you know you and I were just talking before we started recording about our love for the city but um, I remember, so I did my undergrad uh, personally in New York. I went to school in the Bronx and I had to take, it was a liberal arts college. So I took an intro to music history class when I was a freshman. Oh, cool. And I remember for like one of our first assignments, we had to go into the village and go to an actual like jazz concert. And it was just so crazy and eye-opening to me. Because growing up from where I did in, you know, a rural town in northeastern Pennsylvania, jazz mm -hmm. was, you know, something that I was seldom listening to. But again, New York just opened my eyes to that. Yeah, and you'll just be walking down some street and pop into this grungy, dingy, gross place. And there's like Robert Glasper, like a Grammy Award winning <laughs> <laughs> a P 
jazz pianists they're jamming and that's what's so cool about new york is that the level of playing is so high that you can just you know even the subway musicians like some of them are so good or like mm-hmm. i don't really know what other city in the world is like that um where there's just so much of a street culture in terms of music and then also just a jam culture where people will just show up and bring their instruments and play it's really amazing oh totally So then walk me through, I guess, these viral videos and the opportunities that they created for you in your career. Um, How did that come about, posting your videos on YouTube and social media? Yeah, um, well, I first it was just like, I mean, the one that went viral, um, for real, for real, (laughs) was the mask off one. And that was back in 2017, I think. Maybe I think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. feels like ages ago, but it really wasn't that long ago, I guess. But well, actually, one of my friends, like another violinist I saw on my, on um, Instagram, posted it. I heard playing to it, and I was just like, "Well, that's like, that's kind of cool." Like I, my Instagram, I never, I didn't care about getting followers. I wasn't trying to like trick the algorithm and like do certain hashtags. I just, I was working. I was getting lots of good jobs. I was playing in orchestras. I was teaching. I was fine. I just happened to put up a video that went crazy and you know I was in my living room like wearing like just workout clothes and it was something that I never could have expected or anticipated and also I never knew it would change my life the way that it did and I think that's the power of social media these days it's something that's so democratic and everybody has everybody these days has a phone for the most part Um, Mm -hmm. and all it takes is just capturing some moment that people happen to love and your whole life can just shift. And of course, it's not so much that I wanted to be an Instagram star. That's not really, that was never, you know, something I aspired to be, but it just gave me so many opportunities and so much more leverage in terms of presenting myself for opportunities that I really did want. And I'm very grateful to that. But before that viral moment, I was using my platform. I didn't have many followers, like maybe 500 or something, (laughs) Um, I was using my platform just to, like post up my life. I was do I was sharing little fusions that I was making at home. Like they were kind of poorly done, but you know I was I was using it to the best of my ability. Um, and it was funny because I was actually in an orchestra at the time and I was posting these videos. And um, the principal violist of the orchestra was like, "I don't want to be in this orchestra anymore if she's if you're going to let her post these videos because." they're trashy, like they're not good, blah, 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 blah. And the conductor of the orchestra was like, look, like Azima's going nowhere. Like she's a great player. Her videos are actually bringing people to our concert. So just chill. But I was just, you know, sharing whatever I was working on with no agenda or anything, but definitely 2017 mask off just changed everything. Right. Yeah. I mean, social media, it's absolutely insane how one post can just become so accessible to so many people and then just like you said fame can come into into play I mean just like I feel like every year there's so many individuals that get discovered on social media and it's absolutely incredible and really a career launcher it can be amen it's it's it's, I think it's a beautiful thing of this age of course social media is a double-edged sword and in the sense that I think the perception of a lot of young people today is that when moments do happen, 
we look at it in terms of its likability, it's how viral it can go, how whatever, like, I think we have this lens of social media, and I, I've talked to many of my friends about this, that, you know, is kind of permanently on. And right now in my life, I'm I'm working to be able to have it on and off, mm-hmm. because I think sometimes it affects the way that I perceive life, music, relationships, myself, you know, and I think it's um, just as I'm getting older, as I'm growing with social media and like seeing younger people on it, like, you know, these kids, like we're 16, 17, you know, going viral and how much it changes you. I, I'm much more aware than I used to be, than I used to be of, of also the negatives of social media. And I'm, I'm grateful to have that balanced perception now. Um, and working on how to really live with it in a way that's not overpowering right, to my lifestyle. And I think with artistry, too, you never want to really lose that sense of individuality that comes exactly. with and, you know, someone as an artist, as a performer. Yeah, definitely. You don't want to, yeah, you don't want to let that go. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing I wanted to bring up, I have to bring up, um, you performed at Coachella with Beyonce? Yes. Yes. Can we talk about that? So how, I mean, how was that moment? And, you know, in terms of your career, um, performing on such a big stage like that and with such a huge artist like Beyonce, what was that like? Um, it was just so powerful to be there and to be, you know, it was a massive cast of amazingly talented, predominantly black artists and musicians and dancers. And it was just an honor to be on that stage. And it was, you know, I just have, while you were asking this question, I just literally saw the curtain coming up, you know, (laughs) like for our first show for Coachella and just, just the energy and like everybody was, you know, vibrating and just complete excitement for this performance and herself too. Like it was, I mean, every time I've gotten to work with Beyonce and I've, I've been working with her for three years. Um, and after Coachella, I decided to focus on my own things. But in that period of time, it's just watching the greatest mentor, um, musician, to watch her build that set and then perform it was something that I am just so humbled to have been a part of and so inspired and really shaped my concept of a show. Like after that, it's like, you can't just go up on stage and play your violin. Like you, you have to do something, you know, <laughs> and even though I'm, you know, I'm not a dancer and a singer and all the many of the things that she is, I, I did walk away from that experience realizing that shows must be trans transformative for an audience. They must move you. It must take you on a journey. And it's all of these things because the audience was just going crazy and it was just such a wonderful experience. And I was so proud to be on that stage and, you know, also just the message in terms of, you know, Coachella is a predominantly affluent white audience. And here she is bringing HBCU culture and an all black audience. Like that is exactly. another thing that was, I think, you know, had political intentions and political undertones. And I think that was so beautiful to be a part of. Um, and I'm really honored she asked me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. you know, one of the reasons I wanted to bring that up and talk about your viral moments as well is that I think that's what makes you really amazing and incredible as an artist is that you've managed to take this classical instrument and then incorporate sort of a modern flair and artistry into it. And you've performed with and worked with um, 
so many different artists from a wide variety of different genres. And I think it's definitely what sets you apart from so many other individuals in the music industry that, um, you know, use instrumentation. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. <laughs> so now you are creating music of your own, though, too. Um, how would you best describe your style, your genre? Um, well, my original music is, I would describe it as cinematic. Um, I would describe it as a fusion of orchestral textures with like hip hop sounds. And it's kind of just this swirly, melodious um, cloud of sound with thumping beats. I, I can't really, it's hard to describe it because I've never heard anything like it before. And it's also very different from my covers because my covers are, of course, rooted in something that everybody already knows very well. And for this original music, um, my the, the foundation for these five singles I've released or I'm releasing right now is to take very iconic classical melodies and reimagine them in a modern and popular context. So for instance, um, Vivaldi spring, bum, 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 it's a melody that everybody knows from the four seasons, but to reimagine it, put different harmonies, add bass lines, add, you know, trap beats. That's something that you would never imagine for a piece of music written almost 400 years ago. So that was kind of the mission for all of these songs. And they all feature just the most iconic melody you can imagine. Beethoven's fifth symphony or Ode to joy, which is from Beethoven's ninth, ninth symphony or, um, box solo cello suite or um, the Vivaldi. So all of these just pillars in the classical community and in the classical repertoire, but making them hot for today. So that was the mission for this project. And I think it is fun. I think for a lot of people who aren't used to being classical consumers, they don't want to come they want to, they, everybody wants to feel like they understand the music that they're listening to, that nobody wants to feel dumb, nobody wants to feel stupid. And I think in the classical space, there can be such, there can be such, um, it's very elitist and it can be not very welcoming. So I know sure. for, you know, friends or for people I've dated in the past, when I bring them to concerts, they're like, I just don't feel comfortable because I don't know what to do. And with this music, I wanted to basically let people in and say it's okay if you don't know what to do because it's music and music should be fun and should make you dance and should make you happy and that was something that I really wanted to communicate in addition to the sounds and the textures but to communicate that message to everyone. Mm -hmm. I love that and like you mentioned I think also classical music unfortunately it's not widely accessible for individuals um, like you yeah. and I had mentioned before, unless you're in big major cities, it's hard to have access to, you know, go see an orchestra and um, yeah. see composers. So um, I love that you're, you know, you're working to sort of enlighten <laughs> individuals and bring them into that community through your work. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's funny that you say that because actually, you know, even back when I was in Nebraska, um, so this is after I'd been like, you know what? I think I want to do music. I was just finishing out my degree there. Um, my, I had a piano trio, um, Giazima Piano Trio, it was called. <laughs> but um, piano trio is for piano, cello, and violin. And we, you know, we had won some competitions. We were very, very serious. 
piano trio. Um, but in our senior year, we went on a tour of rural Nebraska. And the mission of this tour was basically what you just said. It's just so many people don't get concerts. They don't have access to, it's not even like the Yo-Yo Ma's or the Joshua Bell's or the Hillary Hans, but it's like they don't even get access to like a high school music program or an elementary music program. So we did a, a tour of Nebraska, the most, the smallest cities, towns, I think you can technically call them villages are so small, um, <laughs> but, you know, going to these rural places and playing and then doing an outreach at their high school their, or their one school that was for K through 12. And the response from these people was, was just so moving because you realize that the elitism of classical music has built up so many walls. And if people can just listen to Beethoven, they will be moved. If you take away all the rules of when you're supposed to clap, what you're supposed to wear, what time the concert starts, what time the concert's supposed to start, and you just come and perform, people were so touched and so inspired. And they were like, I've never heard this before. I've never seen, I've never seen a violin before. I've never seen a cello before. And and it was just so empowering for us to do that and to have that mission in our music. And I really think from that experience, that's really walked with me to where I am today. And it's funny, I'm actually just connecting these dots right now while I'm talking to you. <laughs> but it's something that's always just meant a lot to me is to make sure that whatever I do is accessible, even if it is classical music. Yes. Yeah, so I think with accessibility is also... Um education and awareness. So that's actually something that's very important to you, as you mentioned, and you do a lot with music education. If you want to talk about your work with that and um, maybe things you're planning on doing. Yeah, definitely. Um, I became obsessed with music education when I moved to New York City and um I just began teaching. I, I have three younger siblings who also played violin very disastrously, but it was my job to like teach them and they hated it. But also, even though they hated it, I learned that I love teaching. Um, and, you know, I was, I was a young kid at this time. But when I came to New York, I they had such a, they had a wonderful certification program for music education. I took the program and became a certified music educator and then um, went on to help build some violin programs in a handful of public schools in New York City um, at PS89, PS166, just so they would have after-school violin programming. And I taught there, and I just loved it. Like, I really, really love it. Um, and the reason why I love it is because education, to me, is the best way to close gaps and to make more of an equal and fair world is by giving everybody the tools. You know, I, when I was teaching, I also, I also used to teach at this very prestigious, very affluent private boys school. And these kids had access to everything, you know, the mm -hmm. best science labs, the best microscopes, the best orchestras, the best instruments, all of that stuff. And then I would teach it at a school in Harlem and it's like, they don't have any of that. So to me, it's like these, the, experiences I've had in the classical community of people maybe being prejudiced or people being judgmental or people not being inclusive of everyone. It starts so young. And that's why I decided to build a nonprofit organization called Heartstrings. You know, we're still in the developmental phase with COVID and everything, but 
the mission is just to equal this level playing, equal this playing field through music education and specifically for kids who may not have access to it. And that's something that I've, as I'm growing in my career and as I'm getting, you know, I just got an email right before this call actually from a student who did a report on me. Um, <laughs> and, you know, she's the only black girl in her, in her orchestra. And she's just like, I just looked up to you so much. And, blah, blah. and you're like, this is why I, this is my purpose. My passion is music, but my purpose is really for kids. And I know for me growing up, I felt so alone and I felt so, even though I loved music, I, so much of it was just a lack of visibility. Like none of my friends look like me who played the violin. I would do all state. I was the only black kid ever in any of the orchestras and all that stuff. And yeah, that does take a toll. And I, and for me, I just want to make sure that we can have a more inclusive space for these future classical musicians. Right. And because like you said, you never want any of those things like affordability, accessibility, and inclusivity to get in the way and steer someone away from their passion. Um, Exactly, exactly. And I was, you know, very, very fortunate to have parents who saw the value in music education. You know, there was a period in my, in my life, my mom, um, when my parents got divorced and my mom moved away and then I was, you know, traveling between Illinois and Nebraska. Actually, this is kind of crazy. I was like kind of homeschooled because I was just gone so much. And I was still doing violin and my parents were divorced and all that stuff. And then she came back just because it was so crazy for me and took a very low paying job. Like, you know, we qualified for free lunch. We qualified for like all of the aid and everything. And she still found a way to pay for half of my lessons. And just that level of appreciation and understanding for what this meant to me when she couldn't even, you know, go buy new clothes. It was something that was really, really hit me even as a child. And I think I took it so seriously because I knew how much she was sacrificing just for me to do this. And, you know, it's not about, you know, how much money you make. It's just about making that time every single day, having that teacher and having somebody present you with an opportunity for lessons. And that can just change a child's life. So that is really my motivation in my education. Amazing. Well, keep it up because it really is so important. Thank you. (laughs) So um, one last thing I want to mention is that you do have a new holiday single coming out, Drummer Bay. Oh, yes. (laughs) Where can people find it? Yeah, it'll be on all platforms um, where you get music. It'll be there. We also have an amazing video for it and... Um, you know, I love holiday music and Christmas music, and this song is obviously a play on Drummer Boy, um, <laughs> but I love Christmas music so much, I couldn't even decide which one to pick, so it has Drummer Boy, We Wish We Merry Christmas, and Joy to the World all in one. Amazing. <laughs> I just love them all so much. <laughs> I know. But, I, yeah. I have to admit, I have begun listening to the Christmas music. <laughs> My playlists have well, started. You- <laughs> I know you have another one to add in your rotation. So, Amazing. Um, yeah, no, I, I think also just given this year that we've had, we all just need some joy. And I just wanted to pick the happiest songs and the bounciest beat and just be like, let's just be joyous, even though it's been such a tough year for so many of us. Amen to that. <laughs> I know we really need a, a lot of joy. So um, I can't wait to hear it. And uh, we will be sure to leave a link in the episode description so that everybody can go check it out. 
Oh, thanks so much, Catherine. Of course. So before we wrap, you know, with this being handling it, I like to ask, what's a piece of advice that's helped you handle your life? A piece of advice that has helped me handle my life is to just remain as true and as honest to myself as I can at all times and to trust my own wisdom, my own intuition, and my sense of who I am in this moment and where I need to go. Amazing. Amazing. That's great. Like you said, um, you know, with our conversation earlier about social media and just, I think it's so important as artists, as people, (laughs) you know, as human beings to just stay true to yourself, you know, create your own lane and, and stick to it. Mm-hmm. Amen. <laughs> awesome. Well, Ezzy, thank you so much for coming on. I can't wait for everybody to check out your music. And yeah, so excited for these new singles coming out. Well, I hope you all enjoyed hearing from Azima. I've left a link to her new single, Drummer Bay, in the episode description below, along with her social media handles so you can keep up with all of her amazing videos that she posts. So thank you to Azima so much for coming on, and thank you listeners so much for tuning in. As always, let me know what you thought of our episode. You can reach us on Instagram, at Handling It Podcast, and feel free to send us a message and let us hear your thoughts and suggestions. We'll see you this Wednesday with a brand new episode, but until then, keep staying safe with everything going on in the world right now and keep handling it. I'll talk to you soon.